Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. The Athletic. Hello and welcome to the Race IndyCar podcast, our last one of the year, wondering how long it would take for Alex Pillow to win the 2023 IndyCar Championship. He's wrapped it up in Portland around early. He has five wins, nine podiums, 12 top fives, 16 top tens and two poles on the season. I think we could all agree a pretty dominant one. Coming up on this week's show, we'll talk a little bit about Alex's progression a little bit of comparison to 2021 and how much he's changed as a driver. We'll also obviously talk about Dixon being unable to to overcome that massive gap and pick out some of the other key performers in the Portland race. We'll also have a lot to talk about with Silly Season. Uh, we'll mention Laguna Seca, obviously, and uh, a very cool test coming up on Wednesday. Uh, we'll talk about the leader circle a little bit. We'll touch on Indy next, and then we'll tee up next weekend. So to start with, hello, J.R. Hildebrand from your uh, almost native San Francisco. How are you doing? Ah, good. I didn't know you were in SF already. So yeah, that's good to yeah, hear. Yeah, I've, I've arrived. I'm already, uh, I'm already hearing people say that you're the most famous uh, sport in export out here. So that's cool that people uh, <laughs> people think people feel that way. I don't know who you're talking to. <laughs> <laughs> I need to meet hey, these the hotel people. Front desk, the hotel front desk seemed to know who you were. So that was <laughs> pretty right, cool. All right. I got a little street cred still. Yeah. Yeah. I still had my uh, I still had my credential on from coming from Portland and they're like, oh, IndyCar, J.R. Hildebrand's from around here, isn't he? So hey. I obviously right. I obviously bumped into that only J.R. Hildebrand <laughs> fan in San Francisco. <laughs> yeah. I found out I found out where you were staying in advance and paid and slipped Venmo twenty bucks to the front desk. <laughs> awesome. All right. Well, we know we need to talk about Alex Pillow, but instead of us talking about him first, JR, why don't we head straight over to a little exclusive interview that was done uh, almost immediately after him wrapping up the championship yesterday. I have to apologize a little bit in advance for some background noise from the track. The USF 2000 and uh, Indy Pro 2000 uh, guys were making a, a bit of racket in the background, but hopefully you're going to be able to hear all of this and Alex Pillow talking um, many topics. Um, one of them, I guess I asked him about how it felt to kind of win when he could have been driving for a different team this year and maybe wouldn't have even been in this situation in the in the first place. Um, we also talked about uh, the the great news that he's announced that uh, he's going to be a father in the in the off season. Um, and yeah, we also talked about obviously his uh, his progression as a driver and he talked a little bit about why he thought uh, this season's been so special for him. So without further ado, we'll head over and chat to Alex Pillow. Alex Blow, welcome to the Race IndyCar podcast once again. The last time we had you on was for your poll at the Indy 500. So uh, it's nice to have you on again in more uh, happy circumstances. And um, we heard before as well that you announced that you are having a baby as well. So big congratulations on that and uh, for the championship, of course, as well. Um, I guess give us a little taste of how you're feeling, your emotions today. Obviously, you won the championship back in 2021. How different does it feel uh, being sat here today and the kind of emotions that you're feeling after after the championship? Yeah, thank you. Thank you, man. Um, it's been a, a special year, a special day today, uh, clinching my second IndyCar championship. Um, it's better than what I ever thought uh, on my dreams. So feels feels super, super good, honestly. I just... Um, it, it feels extra special when you're able to win the race and celebrate. Uh, I, I'd say it would be very different if you just finish fifth or tenth and then you celebrate that you're not really happy about the race. So yeah, couldn't be happier today. The uh, I guess looking at the I guess how do I put this in words? Um, the, the, the way you've won it obviously winning the race and obviously being able to do that here um, and, and wrap up the championship early um, I guess does that give it even more satisfaction knowing that you can kind of go into Laguna now and just kind of not relax but at least you've everything's done and wrapped up basically after all these questions you've had to face about the championship and all of that happening yeah absolutely I mean um, as I said it makes it extra special when you win but also um, I started uh, obviously 
getting a lot of attention about the championship and some people saying that it was about our consistency and yes we've been really consistent but uh, I didn't want to win a championship only by consistency I wanted to be like hey we we won five races uh, maybe we can even do it again next next week which will be hard but um, that's uh, that's what motivates us uh, a lot and that's what we wanted to do. I think this is a kind of year that we had the opportunity to do so. We didn't really have that opportunity last year so we have to take advantage when the times are as good as today. You mentioned the five wins and I wanted to ask you what you feel like you've done particularly well yourself this year and I guess that kind of just what you just said about the not wanting to do it just by consistency. I guess maybe you felt in 2021 that your, your championship was born out of consistency rather than maybe like doing some of these elite kind of performances that you, you see from these drivers who are capable of, of really strong pace but this year you've delivered five wins and you've shown even today um, with the overlap that you had to do you set like the fastest lap of the race for like five laps in a row there building that gap and, and showing that you were the quickest guy in the field and uh, I guess does it feel like you've shown that this year and that's something that's maybe different to, to 2021? Yeah that's very different as I said uh, 21 I would say that it was a very um, championship won by consistency and this year as well but it was more like uh, winning races being super fast on track having the chances of like hey we're fighting for the race like we're not fighting only for a top five we're fighting for the race and there's a big difference on mindset and confidence that that gives you um, like today yeah we just had a really fast car and instead of just finishing on the podium we wanted to win uh, uh, we did so um, so we had the opportunity this year honestly the car's been phenomenal uh, the guy's been phenomenal on the pit stops and strategies as well so um, yeah I just hope that we can continue with the form that we had you mentioned the team I guess there was some uncertainty last year about you could be even racing for another team anything could have happened I guess coming into into this year and now you've delivered this this championship winning year it's obvious that you're close to a lot of the people in the team and um, you feel really kind of, you, you feel a lot of gratitude toward them for the for the car that they give you and stuff like that. What does it feel to, uh, I guess, after everything that's happened to, to draw a line under everything and, and kind of deliver the championship for them this year as much as it is for you, I guess? Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, obviously the scenario we're in and we were also last year, it's not ideal. It's not what I wanted for my career, my uh, image uh, or for any team but um, yeah I just uh, I wish I did uh, did or that things develop differently but uh, it's not the case so yeah I think the least I could do was to um, get a, a championship for the team for myself for my family uh, to give uh, everybody back so yeah I think we lost the opportunity last year because of things that happened off track uh, and I couldn't let that happen again. How will you celebrate? I'm sure there'll be some fried chicken involved, but is, is there any special plans that you have already that you want to do to kind of celebrate this? Or do you already feel like you've got so much uh, with the baby and I'm sure you'll be testing the, the 2024 car a bit as well in the second part of this, uh, well, I guess before Christmas. Um, do you feel like you're too busy already to think about <laughs> celebrating? Yeah, honestly, I haven't thought about it because I was like, man, we need to win it. Um, Dixon is pushing us hard and you never know what uh, this guy can do. So um, I don't know, but I'll enjoy everything every single day, every single moment. Um, I'll go back to Spain and celebrate with the family as soon as the testing, off-season testing is done. Um, and yeah, I'll just enjoy every single day. We mentioned some of those people in your team that have been a big part of this success. I know there's way too many to even try and mention all of them and, and talk about all of them. But the, the one that I guess has been spoken about a lot this weekend is, is Barry Wanzer and he's at home, obviously, having to watch this in a, a way I'm sure he didn't want. Um, he would have loved to have been at the track to, to celebrate this success with you, I guess. Um, can you talk a little bit about what it means to get it over the line for him and, and to give him the win as well? Because I guess he's been one of the probably one of the most important people in what you've been able to achieve at Ganassi. Yeah, absolutely. He's been uh, a big, big part, a big director of uh, the Tenkar and all the Chip Ganassi racing team. Um, yeah, it's sad, but at the same time, I think it's good because they catched it on time and that he's recovering well. Uh, we were able to finish the job that he put us in the position to do, so he'll be happy and hopefully that helps him recover quickly. Just finally, what are your feelings now, I guess, after wrapping up the second championship? Does it immediately, do, you, do your objectives immediately turn to the third championship? Do you think, is there something else that maybe the listeners don't know about that you really want to achieve 
you know, moving forward, or is it that third championship that's the next one for you? Indy 500, man, um, that's a big one. We've been close, but uh, it's a tough race. Um, I think it took like more than 10 years to, uh, to Joseph to win it. Uh, it's going to be our fifth one, so we need to uh, keep on working, keep on doing what we've been doing, which we've been really close and really fast, but uh, Indy 500 and the third championship as well, obviously. We're sat here in Portland and you've got a lot of commitments and a lot of things to do, so we thank you for joining us and uh, we'll speak to you again soon. Thank you. All right, JR, that's enough of uh, Alex talking about himself. Let's uh, let's get into this and talk a bit about the, the race, how he wrapped it up and, and talk about him in general. I wanted to start with, I'm going to give you a warning here. I'm going to ask you for a, a polomant of the year, JR. So while I'm talking, you can have a little think about what you're going to pick. But um, I kind of wanted to do something a little bit different because everyone's going to talk about how many races he's won and all of these stats that he's racked up this year. We already know how dominant he's been and we've already, uh, you know, kind of explored that on the podcast in great detail over the past, uh, uh, I guess, seven or eight months. So uh, I kind of wanted to see if we could pick out some kind of interesting under the radar moments that have really kind of defined this championship. And uh, the first one that came to mind for me was the Indy 500 because I've constantly seen people saying that Alex Pelot's had no bad luck this year. Um, and, and I really disagree with that statement. Um, I think there's been a couple of occasions where he's had some some real bad luck and I think it's more accurate to say that not much has gone wrong for him because in these moments where things have gone wrong he's managed to come back from it and the, the perfect example was being stuffed in the pit wall by Renus VK in the Indy 500 when it looked like he might be a, a contender for, for victory in that race and obviously uh, a, finish, a really bad finish there at the Indy 500 would have been you know quite a pivotal moment if we think about the season because he'd obviously won the Indy GP but uh, a bad result there at the Indy 500 and then potentially doesn't go on the the, the stunning run that we saw afterwards. And um, that's what really kind of, uh, you know, established that, that championship lead for the second half of the season. So um, maybe he would have done it anyway, but um, I, I think the Indy 500 was one of those moments people should think back to more when they say he had no bad luck because he had to come back from that um, in, in, a, in a really strong way. And he did. And, and that was one of the reasons I think that kept his kind of momentum rolling from, from the Indy GP. Um, obviously we spoke to him uh, as he scored pole for the Indy 500 on the podcast. So you can go back and listen to that and hear about what he was thinking at that point after that Indy GP win and, and teeing up for the, for the 500. But yeah, that moment in the, in the 500 was a, a big one for me. Is there anything that stands out for you, JR, a moment where you feel like it was kind of pivotal in the championship or, or maybe even just something that really impressed you about Polo that's maybe under the radar compared to just talking about his, his five wins on the season? No, I think I think for me, the that run basically from winning the GP, sticking it on the pole at the speedway in the way that he did, like super trimmed, a very difficult pole run where it seemed like the Aero McLaren cars or, or the Chevys generally maybe were the ones to beat there. And so you, I guess I, I feel like that was an example of Alex just really Alex and the 10 team really committing and maybe just doing the best job of anybody in that top six of extracting the maximum pace out of that moment, basically um, winning the poll, having that go wrong, like you said, in the 500, still walking away with the top five. And then and then for me, actually rolling all of that into a very weird and potentially very difficult race weekend at Detroit where he, you know, kind of stamped his authority on, on just the season at that point. I mean, you've got Indy GP to the 500 to, to the speedway to Detroit. It doesn't get much more different in terms of a three run, a three race run to me, that was really the point after Detroit. He had such a significant margin that that was that was the stage at which, which usually doesn't happen until like later in the year. I feel like we really saw this this weekend. We'll talk about Portland in a minute, but it, it was it, it like it it put everybody else in in a mode where they had to they felt like they had to start taking chances basically in the middle of the season to be able to try to close this gap to Alex. And so, you know, it's, it's not, it's there, I guess it's not to, this is only partially answering your question because it's not, it's not because there was any really one specific thing that stood out to me. I mean, there's a lot of things that stood out, I guess, over those three weekends, just in the fact that they were all so different Detroit. I just felt like that was going to be a, whoever was going to come out on top that weekend was, it was going to be an impressive feat. 
basically somebody whoever was going to win that race was going to have to overcome a lot was going to have to manage a lot of different types of situations extremely well um you know restarts all kinds of different you know crazy stuff going on with that long straightaway a new track bumpy track not making mistakes you know we saw a lot of that happen with other contenders over that weekend alex was just you know squeaky clean and and just the right level of intensity and aggression from a racing you know, competitive competition perspective. Um, but I mean, it, I guess that, that to me was that run through the uh, basically like approaching the midpoint in the season. It just put everybody else on the back foot and, and he was, and we talked about it at the time that it basically enabled, he had such a wide margin that it enabled him and the 10 team to just continue to stay on the offensive basically for the rest of the year, which they've, which they've done. Um, and they did again in Portland. So, um, yeah, I think that Detroit really does is the one for me that sort of stands out as, um, you know, just a, just a really impressive win in a place where you get to see the fact that even though Alex is, is less, um, flamboyant as a driver like you just don't you're you're not he's not somebody that you're watching his onboard or that or he's not somebody who the you know the the tv directors are cutting to his onboard because there's some crazy shit going on you know that you can't miss um but at that type of track just to see him excel and and kind of put it to everybody really struck me as uh being just evocative of what makes him special which is this ability to be right on the limit and 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 truly on the edge without you even really noticing like there's a level of finesse right at the limit that he has that's that i i feel like so it's it it to me is really the thing that separates him from from everybody else and i think and it's the thing that makes me feel like he is the guy that everybody has to beat now, you know, like even, even Joseph, Joseph to me up until this point has really seemed like, okay, as, as long as they just don't have things go wrong, he just seems like the toughest competitor to, to beat on average over the season. Like he really, we've talked about this before that he really doesn't have any weaknesses. There's not, he, he could go out and win at every, at any race watching Alex this season and to me it was just sort of encapsulated in that Detroit performance was like well he's got he's got almost all the things that Joseph has but then he's got this he's got this little other component to his driving style and his way of approaching you know his driving the car different tracks different situations that's actually different from Joseph and and maybe is a small advantage so uh, you know, I think that's, that's something that we really, that I watching Alex this year, it was that came to the fore for me more than his 2021, more than in his 2021 season. And, uh, yeah, it's just really impressive. It's definitely a, an interesting aspect because if we think back to 2021, I think there was a, a kind of feeling that Alex had been consistent and he talked about this in the, in, in the interview in a kind of negative way. Like he didn't want to just be consistent. He wanted to be a you know, he wanted to be unlocking those level of pace that some of those drivers you mentioned uh, are capable of. And I guess in 2021, it was the first time we really got to shine a light on Polo in a in a top car, kind of seeing how he drove the car. And, and you're right, he's so everything's so straight and precise and, and measured that it kind of made you wonder were some of these other guys like Pato Ward and, and Colton Herter finding some of that kind of elite pace because they were driving the car in a more aggressive way and that Alex was never going to be able to to kind of match that unless he unless he switched to a similar driving style or 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 was more a lot more aggressive with the car but he's persisted with his style and I think the first time we saw this was obviously Laguna last year where he crushed everyone by half a minute um that that was probably the first time in a race where we really saw him you know properly run away with it I mean 2021 he scored some some really strong victories but there were there was elements to those that were all not about the kind of just just the raw pace element like Barber where that the fuel saving was was key and track position and strategy were really important for him um, Road America obviously Joseph's gearbox um, you know went in, in in the closing stages there in Portland he got thrown to the back at the first corner and and had to fight his way back on that strategy but it was always the lead one on that strategy that looked like it was going to be an advantage there to with, with the fuel. So uh, I guess what I'm saying is this season, 
he's proven to me that even with that kind of more conservative, let's call it driving style, I guess. I don't know if that's fair. Conservative probably isn't the right word, but just less flamboyant than some of the other guys that you see. He's still been able to extract this level of crushing performance. And um, fourth at Indy was the, the race I mentioned. Um, Detroit was a good one. You mentioned JR because I think it, it really showed how his combination of skills have come together because we know how analytical he is, how he likes to to break down a track and approach it. And I always felt going into Detroit with a new track that it was going to be one that he would be able to hit the ground running quite quickly with because of that ability to to kind of break down the sectors of the track and not compromise the rest of the track, the rest of the, the sectors by improving the car in one area, stuff like that. Um, it's quite good, good holistic approach to, to setting a car up um, over the course of a lap. But then on a street circuit, you also have to deliver that raw pace. And if you can't, then you're not going to win the race. And, and obviously he managed to do that. And then Toronto was another one, JR, after that run of three races that you mentioned that could have gone horribly wrong with that incident where he almost lost his front wing and ended up finishing second. So that was another race where it felt like, oh, okay, this is going to be, this is going to be an Alex Pelosi's season. It's hard to argue against this going any other way. His oval performance also feels like it's been a step up this year. He was third in Texas, fourth at the Indy 500, as I mentioned, um, eighth and third at Iowa uh, and seventh at, at Gateway. So not maybe the, the the blistering kind of wins that you see out of Joseph Newgarden, but he has a better average finish on ovals than Joseph Newgarden now, I think at the end of the season. So um, all, all impressive stuff from him and, yeah, I think um, I think we've covered most of that nicely. The only other thing to mention in the in the race was a, another good example of this raw pace that we that we're maybe talking about more often now from from Alex, and that was the when he was on the overcut strategy at the start of the race. There, I think a lot of people were wondering how he managed to come out of the pits with a like I don't know what it was when he when he immediately came out of the pits. I think it was about ten seconds on on Graham Rahal, and that's because he ripped off about five or six fastest laps of the race while he was out there. And that was what gave him the buffer after the after a perfect pit stop. So another example there in practice of what we've been talking about a lot, JR, recently about how it's not just the strategy that's putting Alex Pillow in these positions. He's matching it with the level of performance that's needed to to make those strategy work. So I, I guess was that another thing you noticed from the from speaking about Portland more specifically, something uh, that you noticed in the race and um, maybe the maybe the people watching at home who haven't got a timing screen in front of them can't necessarily sort of see that, but it was definitely one of the key aspects of him winning that race. Yeah. I think, I mean, I think that was just a, that was a key aspect of just how the race unfolded for a lot of drivers basically was, mm -hmm. you know, the, and, and a surprising component of it in that particular, in that particular exchange. I mean, it was sort of the perfect storm of the drivers that started on the alternate tire pitting earlier than they kind of needed to in a way like pitting earlier than you know certainly they're not pitting for fuel at that point so they they're they're coming in mid stint um which is in essence before the black tire was e even it it proved to be a very you know low deg tire just anyway but you're also the trade off there basically you know usually usually what happens in that kind of situation is both tires are are degrading at some at some rate. The guys that were on reds, it wasn't like they were getting just completely mopped up with the guys on blacks at that point. Yes, the drivers that were on blacks were, you know, making starting to make some somewhat significant headway. So that that transition point had occurred, certainly, but it wasn't like they were all it wasn't like all of those guys that were running up front, McLaughlin. Ray Hall, whatever. It wasn't like they were all just falling off a cliff. They pitted, but they pitted early enough in the stint and the black was good enough over the duration of the stint that basically the guys coming out on fresh blacks, because the black was in some sense just a, a pretty, you know, it stayed relatively, it didn't have like a massive peak at the beginning and it didn't fall off massively at the end that, you know, in some respects, just the fact that those cars are now on a full load of fuel, whereas you've got Pillow and Dixon in A, really good cars. B, both of those guys we know are really good at this track. But then C, they're not experiencing significant deg yet from the tire, and they're on not insignificantly less fuel, basically, than the cars that are now full of fuel and having coming out in traffic, you know, we saw that that was, you know, an aspect of this whole thing because you've got mixed, mixed up strategies that, um, you know, that basically just ended up playing, playing into the hands of Pillow and Dixon that they were, they were able to just rip a bunch of lap 
laps and and that that didn't seem like that was as as you just sort of alluded to like that wasn't necessarily qualifying lap performance that's just what was available in the car on the black tire at that stage in the race and so um you know that was definitely i i felt like watching it i had to kind of you know you're you're almost you're almost sitting there like what am i what am i missing here like did did all of those guys that just pitted all have bad pit stops or did they all come out and just get totally hosed on their outlaps and traffic or you know something like that but then you know you just you you recognize that that didn't really happen or it certainly didn't happen for all of them and that you know basically the pace was just there for for the guys that were on blocks and that that essentially ended up yeah, as as we saw watching the race, that sort of dictated, in essence, the the rundown for the whole rest of the race. Because as the track then rubbered in, and those cars had to go to reds at some point later on, they didn't experience the same degradation that the cars that pitted at the beginning were, and and so it it it, it in essence jumbled the order after the after everybody's first stint, and that didn't change that dramatically for the rest of the race. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. All right, JL, let's crack on with the race. Uh, Scott Dixon, I didn't really feel like he had a a massive chance to to keep things alive unless something really bad happened to Alex Pillow and obviously nothing bad happened to Alex Pillow. He won the race. So it was always going to be difficult, especially with the point system, the way it is with Alex basically scoring five points just by starting in Laguna Seca. So cutting that 74, 72 point gap down to what effectively needed to be 48 to have uh, a serious chance. um, If we're calling that a serious chance was, was always going to be difficult. Um, He felt like he had a chance if something went wrong, but it was never really going to be something that he could kind of put this on his back and, and uh, push this forward on his own. I guess the most interesting aspect of, of the whole Dixon thing, because he kind of, uh, I guess he kind of mirrored Alex's strategy apart from that. He went um, for the softs in the third stint instead of the second stint, like, like Alex did, it was a pretty straightforward, like trying to do something similar to Alex, but different at the same time to try and give himself that edge. But I didn't really feel like there was anything major that played out there. What what kind of did stand out to me was the amount of F words he said on his radio as he got, uh, I guess, kind of felt like at least he got robbed of the chance of, of second there because of IndyCar's new system of uh, leaving the, the pits open to let people pit uh, when there's clearly a car that's going to bring out a caution. Um, aside from the safety element that Scott raised, which I thought was a valid one, it was quite a dangerous place to leave a car for, for so long. Um, he was mad because Felix didn't do an outlap, which meant he didn't lose as much time as Scott would have done in his previous pit stop. So he was basically saying that even though IndyCar is trying to help by, you know, letting Felix pit, um, somebody else has, has kind of been, um, you know, let go there. Um, and also a kind of additional, but similar kind of, I guess, rule-related thing. We had uh, Pato Award being quite 
irate after the race as well about being held up by by traffic um so we had kind of two little things going on there here in the kind of aftermath of the race in terms of um questioning why things are happening and, and looking a little bit at that so i guess with dixon what do, do you kind of agree with him that this um i mean I, I guess my feeling is that in most races this does help people um you know not get hosed by a caution uh but it just it just so happened in this case when you've got one car like that and he's fighting for for a significant position you've got you've basically got um you know felix getting a massive advantage by not having to do the outlap so um I don't know if I felt like this was more like a isolated incident or whether JR, you've got maybe a different opinion or can explain it a bit better than I can. Well, this has definitely happened more than once. Um, you know, so I guess I would say, I do think that this needs to be reviewed. I, I feel like the sort of spirit of the way that they do this, I think is probably in the right place, which is, you know, the, the, the other way of doing it basically is Felix gets totally screwed basically by by being on a strategy that they're trying to go long in that in that part of the race and so you know he ends up if if they don't if they call for a course full course yellow and the pits are closed at that point then felix has to stay out he's basically going to end up cycling all the way to the back because wherever he you know he's going to be in essence in the effective lead of the race but then have to pit once everybody's bunched together so he's going to be the last car in the lead lap basically by the time that he by the time that he pits so it's a little bit rare that it's it's sort of infrequent that and 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 i actually should say that i don't know that he was there must have been other cars that were you know that also had to that were on like similar strategy to felix we're just talking about we're talking about him as kind of the one that um you know was was most in play here at the end of the race um and so you know they do this to basically try to avoid that which is sending cars that are competing for podiums for top fives maybe for the win whatever for just sending them immediately to the back of the cars and lead lap you can imagine if you know given that this was at the end of the race there's basically no way that felix comes back from that uh besides just you know maybe he's on he ends up on slightly fresher tires and the cars that he's around but we kind of know that that doesn't that doesn't usually play you know, a significant enough factor in, in kind of how those races are going. Cause this is, this typically is happening in a pit sequence anyway. So everybody's on relatively, you know, fresh rubber one way or the other. Um, but Dixon, you know, I think there's, there's two things to two legitimate gripes here from Dixon's point of view. One is this is, this is then giving those cars cars that are in Felix's position, it's giving them an advantage instead, instead of like really the way that this should work is that they should be, you know, the, the chance that you're, you're kind of leaving it up to chance in any of these kinds of situations by playing a strategy that you're going to pit late. That's just part of that's that you, you factor that in. Everybody's factoring that in potentially to, to what the risks and odds of, having it go right, having it fall your way or not. So you're, you're sort of giving him a free pass and then he ends up actually gaining an advantage by you giving him the free pass. So you kind of get this double, double advantage in this situation compared to how it should be in some respects or how it would normally be. I totally agree with Scott that that car in particular was in quite a dangerous spot to just have no yellow whatsoever. So that seems that, that part of it was, was absurd to me I, I think there's a middle ground here which is you just immediately go full course yellow and just leave the pits open for a lap maybe you know i mean that you probably end up with the pack bunching up some so maybe you maybe you cut into the advantage that you know that the cars that are still out that are you're gonna leave the pits open so that you know felix in this position in this situation Maybe that enables Scott to like close the gap up to Felix enough that kind of he doesn't for by no fault of his own end up, you know, losing a bunch of track position because because this works out the way that it does. But, you know, I, I think that this at least this at bare minimum needs a little riff riff on it to kind of consider how this has happened. I mean, it, it's, I, I can certainly remember, I think, last year at Mid-Ohio, this happened and uh new garden and, and the only reason i know that i remember this 
as clearly as I did just because I was really confused about how it ended up working out during the race that year that Joseph was running fourth or fifth or something and then suddenly was like eighth after this after that caution had played out in essence to a caution that was just like this pits left open to allow you know I I I believe like McLaughlin and some of the guys that were you know in the lead of the race at that point had stayed out so so it's sort of you know this this rule exists or this this way of addressing these situations exists to try to have cautions play less of a you know sort of a spoiler in the race but you know like Scott was kind of detailing that there comes some complexities in that that end up screwing guys anyway and so um I think that it needs to be looked at from that perspective because I think probably if you address the fact that it's there is a an element of it that is unsafe then maybe you also more often than not, or you, or you at least eat into addressing kind of the other component of this, which is, which is not to love. The other thing that I was surprised by was the fact that they left um, cars that were a lap down where they were at that last, last yellow, which I guess is because they only move cars to the back if it's inside the last like 20 laps or something, but that this, and, and that, you know, that caution was on, maybe they went back green with like 22 to go or something. So maybe that's why that didn't happen. But that also totally screwed Scott. Like you basically had Polo and Rosenquist and then like three lapped cars and then Dixon. So that, that just in terms of, you know, again, if we're, it's, it's like, and, and this, this goes into Pato's gripe, which is just about lapped cars in general, particularly at the end of the race, which we've talked about a number of times and and just seems like it continues to be brought up, is like, all right, I I personally just think we we need to be a little bit more uh, we need to like at least be whether whether this is how we decide what the rule is going to be or whatever, we need to be aware of the fact that especially in a situation like this and this is what Pato was talking about everybody's made their final pit stop you are not going to get your lap back at this point so like why isn't the rule in essence just that once that has happened at whatever point that's happened in the race then all of these you know then then we kind of go into this late race mode where all you know lap cars are all going to the back of the field Everybody's getting command blue flag. You know, you're taking away push to pass. You're doing all of these things. Like, I think I think a lot of the drivers would say that should happen much earlier in the race and that there are races where it starts to play a factor much earlier in the race. But at a bare minimum, I just don't I don't I think that IndyCar should take into some real consideration revising the sort of timing of when some of these lapped lapped car like um you know the criteria for when we start treating lapped cars differently like how and why that comes into play because i do think that that to me even more so than felix kind of getting a leg up in this whole situation sort of made the end of this race totally anticlimactic between polo and dixon i mean even if you would even even if you had left rosenquist in there in second there would have been at least a couple of laps there where you thought, all right, if Dixon can get by or maybe Rosenquist pushes Polo and Polo makes a little mistake because they're on different tires. Rosenquist is on the red. Maybe Rosenquist gets by, you know, whatever. Like there's there would have at least been a, as a viewer, there would have been a thought in your mind about the potential for there to be something interesting going on here. And and instead, a little bit to Pato's point, I feel like somehow we're we're still kind of prioritizing you know, lapped cars being able to race. And it's just like, well, like ultimately that's making it in more often than not, that's making it so that the cars that are on the lead lap that are actually fighting for wins and podiums and top fives and whatever, that at that point, it's not to say you care about those drivers more, but in that situation, they matter a lot more in terms of what's going on in the race. Um, I, I just think it it definitely needs a you know a good a good look at to figure out how we can improve the you know just Im- improve the experience for the drivers and for the fans in terms of what they really want to see from the end of the end of these events. So that's uh, I guess that's my two cents on <laughs> on all of those 
gripes. Yeah, I think the the safety aspect of this one really worried me, to be honest. Uh, there's There's been so many occasions where they've left the, the pits open when a car's been like parked up well off the track and has been, you know, has looked pretty safe and in, in a place where the driver can get out or um, that, that they're just well out of contention. But where Canapino has stopped was where we saw, you know, at least two or three drivers in practice go off. Uh, Newgarden being the, uh, I guess, the probably the most memorable because he, he ended up in the wall um, at, at the exit there. But we, you know, we saw drivers kicking up the dust there quite often and and getting wide. And it only took, you know, only would have taken a mistake there to for for something bad to happen there. So I hope they'll look at that. Um, it's I, I'd say it's one of the, it, you know, if I was looking at IndyCar safety in terms of just how a race operates, it would be like one of the top priorities for me is looking at that and and making sure that good decisions being made along with I think we see too many races where we have moving safety vehicles and people on track when cars are still moving uh, because that just from experience that's just something that always makes me nervous and I always like to see less of so um, I think those would be my two kind of safety concerns and I, I guess just to address on award um he, you're right because one of the reasons he was so annoyed i think was because they hadn't reordered the the cars at the end there and it held him up it wasn't just general lap traffic through the race it was i think it was that specific moment that really got him riled up um i think we're just seeing like a really high standard right like maybe this wouldn't have been a problem 10 or 15 years ago when we're, we're seeing a a lower standard of 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 driver and team even compared to compared to the top guys in the series i think the the standards raised so high that it's just difficult to pass lap traffic and especially on a what is one of the shortest road courses on the calendar um if, you know it's not an easy place to, to overtake necessarily apart from turn one and even turn one can be a difficult place to overtake later in a stint um as opposed to just the start of the race where it's always talked about as a, a big option so yeah i think uh not not to uh not to disagree with anything you've you've put out there JL just a quick one um give us your two cents on the Polo kind of blocking situation did you think he'd he'd moved there and that was a penalty or were you kind of happy with how that was called mm, it's definitely it's definitely on the it was on the edge wasn't it yeah it's definitely on the edge I mean I I felt like the I felt like on the broadcast they ended up kind of focusing in on the fact that he moved back over to the left that part of it doesn't really bother me just because that's basically just like driving back over to that's driving back to the racing line. So I, I don't really care. Like I, mm -hmm. it wasn't like Elio was trying to set up to pass him on the outside there and he blocked him. He was just moving back over. Um, no. the, the first move was the one that was really questionable. The move to the right, mm -hmm. you know, I don't know. I, I, it, it, it wasn't something like if, if they hadn't made a big deal out of it, I'm not sure I would have cared. So in the big scheme of things, it doesn't really, yeah, it's something that you can point to, you could point to and and say this or that about, you know, the officiating being a, a little, I don't know. That's just one of those things that I don't, I don't think it actually really made, it was not, it was not a pivotal thing in the race as far as I was concerned. You know, if he, if he had done that for a car that would, to a car that was for position, then I might've, I might've thought about it differently. Like I might've thought, oh, that was that one time that Dixon was going to be able to get by him or something, but it was ultimately just like a, a a very momentary hey like don't don't screw me over here elio or whoever it was i think it was elio right <laughs> yeah it was elio um you know that i guess because of that i just don't it was kind of neither here nor there as far as i was concerned yeah i think the the thing that kind of made me okay with it was that the if you're a driver defending a position not blocking, but just trying to position your car in a defensive way, then you would come off that corner and then immediately kind of move to the center of the track, which is what he did, uh, and then didn't move back over until he was at the kind of point of entry for the corner where he was taking the racing line. So for me, that all felt above board and I wasn't too much of, I wasn't bothered about that. It was always going to be a, a social media hot topic with Alex fighting for the championship and people uh, interpreting that in in either way, um, but but I, I thought it was okay. <laughs> Hi, producer Johnny here, interrupting the show momentarily to tell you about Roan, a clothes brand we think you'd like. I don't know about you, but finding clothes you like can be tough. Sizes can vary from brand to brand, and fabrics can be poor quality or uncomfortable. We all know a good outfit can impact your confidence and help you feel your best, and that's where Roan comes in. Their range of stylish, functional, business casual menswear 
helps you look good without having to think about it. It's versatile, high quality and durable, and works in a range of social and professional settings. Roan's commuter collection includes products for every occasion, including the world's most comfortable pants, dress shirts, quarter zips, polos and blazers. It also features, and get this, wrinkle release technology and gold fusion anti-odor technology for more wears between washes, so you'll be fresh and clean all day long. Roan were kind enough to send me a shirt and some pants from the commuter collection, and I can tell they're going to be part of my wardrobe for a long time to come. The commuter collection could get you through any workday and straight into whatever comes next. Head to roan.com forward slash race and use promo code race to save 20% off your entire order. That's 20% off your entire order when you head to rhone.com forward slash race and use code race. It's time to find your corner office comfort. Just quickly, before we get on to some other bits, Joe, I just wanted to round up some other drivers. So Felix Rosenquist scored his, his best result of the year uh, in second. So um, he felt um, he felt important to mention, as did Renus VK, who was, um, I guess, second on the strategy of the the guys who... No, he was first of the strategy of the guys who started on the mm-hmm. on the soft tyres. Yeah. Um, Joseph actually started on the hard, didn't he? So, um, so that was super impressive from Renus. I mean, I think he definitely dumped Marcus Ericsson off the track at one point, which was, um, <laughs> you know... I, I thought it was harsh. I didn't leave him any room and just literally just ran him off the road uh, and finished one position ahead of him in the race, which was quite quite significant. I felt like, but still, uh, Renus has been on a a much improved run recently with with that team. Um, uh, I guess it's roughly since RHR came in. Um, I don't know how significant uh, that specifically is to Renus's performances, but he, he's definitely been on a on a strong run uh, recently. David Malukas also came from. He come from twenty. Was it twenty third? He started. Yeah, it was twenty third um, to to eighth. Uh, pitted on that first uh, caution there and went long. So did well um, and and finished ahead of Scotty Mack, who um, in turn finished uh, two places, three places ahead of Graham Rahal, who was on pole. So a really tough race for Graham and and those guys who started on the on the softs. I think the the, the traffic element really hurt them in the second or the or the third stint. And Graham uh, at one point was. Um, totally dumped offline at turn one, wasn't he? Defending from some guys or trying to get past some guys who'd just come out of the pits that, that held him up really significantly and dropped him back a few places, even behind Christian Lungard, who'd started uh, 17th as well. So um, that that was a bit of a painful one. There's a couple other drivers to mention. Yuri Vips made his debut for Ray Hall Letterman Land again as well. Um, started 18th, finished 18th, pretty sensible race. Um, didn't, didn't do anything too wrong there. I think they were quite conservative with the strategy and just trying to keep him... Um, keep him learning, keep him out on track, um, giving him some some different experiences to, to kind of adapt to in the race. So we'll keep an eye on him at Laguna and see how much he's learned. And Tom Blomqvist was uh, 24th in the end. It was a difficult weekend for Tom, I thought. Um, his, his, he was like six tenths off uh, Helio in qualifying, which was a bit disappointing really, to be honest. But I'm sure he's fighting a lot of things there with his second IndyCar start. And obviously he's not done Portland before. So um, I think we'll judge Tom a little bit more, um, not judge in the negative way, but just kind of interpret how he's getting on after Laguna, where he's raced a few times in, in IMSA. So he should have a better grasp of the of the track there. Yeah, I agree with that. I think that, I think, uh, I thought I was thinking the same thing with, with Blumquist, just like, I think after after having uh, Linus in the car and, and being quite, quite, you know, in a relative sense, quite competitive at a lot of these places to, but, but also, you know, you had, you have to kind of take a step back and realize like, okay, well, Linus has been at these places that he's racing in the Indy car, in the Indy lights car or in the Indy next car. He's, you know, he's familiar with the tracks. He's, he's probably in some respects, just as familiar with the car. You know, I, I think that there, you could probably make an argument that there's more cross, more carryover in terms of you know what you're kind of bringing from the indie indie next car the indie the indie lights car to the indie car than there is even from a top level sports car there's just you know you're coming from a car that's got traction control and you know there's there's just more differences the way that they the way that they feel the way that they you know you kind of they're they're on much different tires um you know the michelin the the prototypes run is definitely different than the firestone that we run on in the indie car series so yeah a lot of a lot of things for him to be getting used to, but I, I'm, I'm definitely, you know, kind of anxiously waiting for, 
for Tom to break out a little bit here at, at one of these events. So I agree with you that Laguna will just will definitely be an interesting one from that point of view. They've obviously already committed to to next year. You've seen, you know, you you appreciate that Shank has seen a lot more from Tom than than maybe we have just from running him in the sports car stuff. So um, you know, we'll we'll look for that to uh sort of come to fruition. Um, you know, potentially it potentially as early as this upcoming weekend. Um I thought Yuri Vips did an awesome job. I mean, basically he was he was on pace right away in first practice. So that that to me was Linus Lundquist esque in terms of uh, you know, the first time that we see him in the car and you know, you can make the argument that that uh Yuri's got, you know, frankly much less experience, much less relevant experience, um, just in terms of the track, the car, any of these types of things. So, um, yeah, it, it'll definitely be, I, I, I imagine that he made himself quite a positive impression within that team from an on track performance point of view this past weekend heading in. So I guess maybe, uh, with that in mind, what can you tell us about silly season? It things like, seems like things are, we thought they were getting crazy like a couple of months ago. It seems like they're just going completely off the rails by now. Yeah, I feel like anything I tell you now is going to change within the next three minutes and then change again in the next 10. So uh, hopefully this podcast isn't out of date by the time you actually listen to it. <laughs> I think we were we were relatively sure that David Malukas was going to be heading to Andretti, but we've had a significant turnaround there because uh, it looks like Aaron McLaren have stolen in and will uh, put him in the car that they thought Alex Pillow was going to drive. But obviously, uh, Zach Brown revealed recently that, that Alex Pillow is not going to come to McLaren. And uh, we had in the aftermath of the championship win, we had Chip Ganassi say that uh, Alex Pillow will be back in his car next season. Um, paraphrasing slightly, but you can go back and listen to that in the post-race uh, broadcast there. So um, we have some Alex Pillow movement. We have some David Malukas movement, which is a very interesting one. I think there's a lot of McLaren could have done a lot of different things with that seat, um, including taking other drivers from the series. They could have uh, brought in some some guys that they're familiar with from from Europe, but have gone with this, uh, I guess, the second youngest driver in the series who has shown some flashes of pace, but maybe struggled a little bit. We've talked about on previous podcasts to to, to establish himself with uh, coin basically being pillaged of most of its staff for the past few years, um, going to bigger teams. So it's been a difficult one for him to to show what he's capable of. But uh, McLaren have decided that he's worthy of that seat. And uh, you can go back and listen to an interview with David from a couple of episodes ago um, where we spoke to him just before Gateway, where he was on the podium again. So that was impressive. The other kind of, I don't know if movement's the right word, because this is what we, we've heard this one for a little while. But with Felix Rosenquist, we expected that the, the news that Alex Plow wouldn't be joining McLaren could maybe open up um, the chance for Felix to stay for another season, uh, which is what happened to him last season. He was in limbo over whether Alex Plow was going to join the team, ended up that he didn't, and then got his reprieve. He didn't want to go to Formula E and ended up staying. But this time he's decided uh, that he's going to join Maya Shank. So he'll be announced at some point in the very near future as uh, Todd Blomquist's teammate which is an interesting one because it means, well, it likely we haven't had any sort of confirmation yet. So I guess we'll know a little bit more with the announcement, but Simon Pagano is unlikely to have a full-time IndyCar seat next season as things stand. Obviously he's got the concussion that he had from the, the somersault in mid-Ohio crash. So um, we, we obviously wish him again, um, as we've spoken about recently, um, spoke about last week on the pod, we wish him the best with his recovery and everything that's going on there. Um, we don't know if he's going to return next season, um, if, if he'll be able to, but we, we hope he can. We hope he, um, his his recovery uh, continues to go well and that he lands with a, a seat, 2016 IndyCar champion, 2019 Indy 500 winner, um, someone who had a really bad start to the season and was probably already, you know, Shank were already looking at his position uh, before the, the concussion um, as to whether they were going to bring him back. He's out of contract at the end of the season. So um, that start to the year has really hurt Simon. Uh, so that's a difficult one to, to to see how that plays out, but we hope um, we hope Simon lands on his feet somewhere for for next season. I guess the other significant changes to make are uh, Roman Grosjean looks uh, set to be leaving Andretti, um, something that's probably been well known for a while, and something we've probably I think even spoken about on the pod at some point in in the last few weeks. Um, he's in talks with multiple teams. Uh, Dale Coyne's an option to go back to from from where he started his IndyCar career. I definitely know he's in conversation with a couple of other teams as well so I'm sure those talks will continue through this week and, and into Laguna and, and, and out of it um, Andretti is an interesting one because without Malukas coming in that potentially gave them uh, uh, an open fourth seat to keep Roman but it looks like Roman's still going to leave 
And there's a, a very real possibility that Andretti could drop to, to three cars for next season, which I think would be a brilliant move. I think Penske have shown how, how beneficial that can be in recent years. And of all the teams to do it, I think Andretti just slimming down a car and just, uh, I guess, getting all of the right pit people in place for, for the three cars that they do have, making use of those additional engineers, keeping them on and, and doing some development work and, and trying to, to get to the bottom of some of their problems and just execute properly on race weekends. I feel like going to three cars would be a great move for them, but they've not totally ruled out staying at four with a different driver. So I guess we'll uh, we'll definitely keep an eye on that. Um, Marcus Armstrong's also set to join Alex Bloke Ganassi for, for next season with uh, with Scott Dixon and Lena Sundqvist who've, who've already uh, been, well, Lena Sundqvist's already been confirmed there. Um, and, and Dixon just kind of uh, turns up at the start of the next season uh, <laughs> each year without having uh, any kind of fanfare over his contracts. That's all definitely kept uh, kept quiet usually. Uh, I think that's all that we can mention so far at the moment, JR. Um, obviously, Laguna coming up will be a little bit of movement. I guess by the time you listen to this pod, some of those drivers I've mentioned might already be uh, publicly announced by those teams. Um, and no doubt by the time we get to Laguna, um, all 27 full-time seats will have changed and that different drivers will be in every single car. And that's kind of how this silly season feels like it's played out. <laughs> I think that's just what we should do for the last race. If I think that should be the deal. Yeah, if, that's a great if idea. If the championship has already yeah. been decided before the last race, then all of the championship positions get get locked in and everybody has to do a seat swap for the last event <laughs> i would love to see that that would be absolutely fantastic make it happen roger yeah um speaking of fantastic ideas jr speaking of fantastic ideas we mentioned on last week's pod that that brian herter should uh should drive his uh 98 winning laguna seca <laughs> car at laguna seca and, and guess what he is i can't pretend to have uh, foreseen that because I had no prior knowledge of this uh, happening. But uh, yeah, he's going to drive on Wednesday. So keep an eye on your social media on on Wednesday because uh, the, the plan at the moment is for Brian and Colton to drive the car. Um, I'm told it's got near a thousand brake and uh, Cosworth have been working hard on the engine to, to, to bring it up to speed. Also, I think Firestone have uh, donated... Um, I hope they've donated multiple sets of tires, but I'm sure they've donated it. Well, they have donated at least one set of tires. And on a resurfaced uh, Laguna Seca, that's going to be quite something to watch, I think. Um, and probably JR is going to get very excited and use it as some sort of proof that IndyCar needs to be at a thousand break and that we basically need to go back to 1998. Have I got that right? Well, I, I definitely, I, I want to make clear that my position is not that I think that we should go back to 1998, but <laughs> I do think, I do certainly think that uh, there are a lot of elements of uh, the cars the way they used to be that we should just be factoring into the way that we think about the car going forward. We, we've obviously made a lot of progress in terms of, you know, what the car is and why it is what it is. But uh, I think there's, there's also been a lot of change that hasn't necessarily made it, made it better for either drivers or the fans, which I, I think is ultimately, those are the two most important customers of our sport. So um, yeah, I, I do feel like if nothing else, I, I I'm going to, I think we should take a little credit for like speaking this into existence or something. <laughs> I'm sure it was already planned. Um, oh yeah it's been it's been a long time in the planning this one i think yeah based on but, uh, how much work's had to go in but anyway yeah no i'm definitely excited for that and uh yeah it, interesting you know i mean interesting just to touch on some of the silly season comments like you know the i think it just goes to show well one i think it does a little bit of all of this speaks to you know there there are some things that have yet become yet to become like really stable in terms of you know, the way that IndyCar kind of it's, it's long-term, obviously IndyCar has to renegotiate a TV contract. I think they're, they are quite optimistic about how that's going to work. And, you know, that creates for rev share with the teams and all that kind of stuff. And, um, you know, we've seen viewership go up this year. We've seen IndyCar become much more committed to their social channels and video viewership. And, and we've seen, you know, you've seen the result of that be, you know, definite, you know, and in some, in some cases, somewhat substantial, increase in um you know engagement which you know i guess i i kind of sit there and go all right well is that just sort of catching up to where we should be or is that you know is that moving the needle really significantly the manufacturer situation for indycar going forward is definitely still a still a pretty significant hurdle but you know i think that just in terms of the way the teams are operating the fact that you've got so much silly season movement is in part a reflection of the teams having the dollars to go out and try to get the guys that they want to get, you know? And so 
um, I think it's really great to see, you know, Felix and, and, and Roman, even, even after the year that he's had, you know, to, to still be in the mix for, you know, we know that these are guys that are not bringing a check. So, um, you know, definitely will be interesting to see how they play. That plays out, you know, like you said about Simon, you know, we, we obviously just don't really know where he's, where he's at going into next year. So, you know, I think we kind of reserve a little bit of judgment on, you know, I think there's, there's kind of, you'd like to say in sports that you don't lose your job, you know, by getting hurt, but that, um, you know, we also know that that's just not how it works. And, um, you know, I think until we, until we learn a little bit more about Simon's situation going forward, what he, you know, wants to do what he, what he, how he feels about some of these things. Um, you know, it's, it's hard to comment on them, on them any more than that. So we'll just kind of see how that all shakes out. But I, I sort of agree with you at Andretti because it, it does seem like they're, it, it sounds as though, at least to me, that they're spooling up to become more involved with the Wayne Taylor, um, Acura program as well. So you'd sort of think, just in an, in an effort, they've, they've expanded a lot. They've gotten their, their hands in a lot of different things over the last couple of years. And and they've got this F1 bid that's still in process and a new factory and, you know, whatever new race shop, like all of this kind of stuff. Um, you know, it seems like potentially downsizing the IndyCar program, um, you know, that, that, that could be a good thing for them and just focus on, you know, focus on three guys that they know are, you know, at the top of the, you know, our elite, elite drivers within the sport. I mean, that definitely, like you said about Penske, um, there's some, there's, 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 there's at least one good case study out there of that being a, a positive thing in terms of the way the organization works and, and being able to get, you know, get back to that level of performance that we've seen from them this year, but just not as consistently as it needs to be. All right. I think the only other thing to mention that's linked to, to silly season is to keep an eye on the teams as well and how um, I guess the, the off-season plays out in terms of technical tie-ups because we've already had uh, Marshall Pruitt report that AJ Foyt and, and Penske are linking up for a little bit of kind of a joint venture for, for the future. So we'll keep an eye on that one. And there's there's rumours for, for other ones as well. Um, I guess the, the, the two plus two one is uh, Aaron McLaren and, and Huncos, two Chevrolet teams who could potentially tie up uh, in some way, shape or, or form for, for next season. Not confirmed at the moment, but just something that's been talked about in the paddock by people who kind of know what's going on. So we'll keep an eye and see if that kind of, you know, comes to to fruition at all. The other kind of, uh, I guess, linked uh, element is the the leader circle we should mention. That's the, I guess, the contract that the IndyCar has with the teams. But the, the key part of that for, for fans watching is that the, the top 22 uh, cars in the owner's point standings will receive uh, just over $900,000 at the end of the season. So obviously a big dogfight going on down there for for that. We've not mentioned it too much recently because it's just so open at the minute. There's so many cars who are mathematically, um, you know, in, in contention to either be in or out there. Um, I guess the, probably the, probably I guess um, looking at it, we're looking at the, uh, we're looking at the, the 28 Carpenter racing car, Ryan Hunter Ray, um, I think both of my shank cars are kind of in the in the window, um, so we'll keep an eye on those as well. We've also got Augustin Canapino, Yuri Vips, Devlin Di Francesco. Um, I think at this point, Stingray Robin and Dale Coyne are probably out, um, but I think still math- mathematically with a with a chance going in. So uh, we'll keep an eye on that. That'll be a, a really tight battle, and without a a championship win to to look for in the final round for the first time uh, for for a very 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 long time, we'll be keeping an eye on how all that plays out. And uh, I also wanted to mention just before we sign off that Louis Foster won the in the next race at Portland with a, a pretty dominant performance from from Paul. More significantly, there was drama for the for the title rivals. Hunter McElray had his race ruined by a, a turn one incident. Christian Rasmussen also got spun round uh, but actually managed to uh, actually managed to stay out of any kind of serious trouble and was able to get back um and, and be in contention in the race. So that was extremely positive for Christian. And the last race of the year at Laguna is a double header for those guys. So we'll keep an eye on that. We know that Christian finished fifth, and that means that he has 445 points compared to Hunter Macaray's 380. So a nice lead going in, but there is two races. So lots of points on offer there. 
just mentioning Laguna quickly. We've we've talked about the resurfacing quite a bit on the on the previous pod, uh, but keep an eye on that and how it impacts things. Obviously, we had Alex Pillow uh, crush everyone there last year, but with a, a resurfaced track, it'll be interesting to see if that changes. We've also got a full a full series test on Thursday, so you'd like to think that um, there's at least an even playing field in terms of people getting prepared and and being ready to to go there. So we'll we'll definitely keep an eye on that. JR, thanks for joining me this week. Really appreciate it. It's been great to get your insight on some really. Um, some really interesting issues that I know you, you will have enjoyed getting into and it was good to talk about the, the silly season a little bit as things will uh, definitely start to unfold as you're listening to this podcast already and yeah uh, a big final congratulations to Alex Pillow on winning the 2023 IndyCar Championship well deserved hope you enjoyed the interview with him and definitely go back and check out our recent podcasts where you can find some interviews with some cool drivers like David Malukas as I mentioned you can learn a little bit more about his season where things have gone right and wrong for him so that's all for this episode of the Race IndyCar Podcast. We'll be back after Laguna Seca. The Athletic.